we're on to week four of our tour around the churches of Revelation. Now, is there anybody here for whom this is their first week of joining the tour? Okay, a couple of people and me. It's my first week as well. I've listened to the other things online, but I wasn't, I wasn't around. So it's very relaxed. There's coffee at the hatch. There's donuts around. Do feel free to get up and top up your coffee and so on as, as you wish. There'll be time for discussion around the tables, getting to know the people, etc. So we are going on to Thyatira. First of all, we're going to find out just a little background about this place on the tour. So where is Thyatira? Let's hope at this point that this works. Where is it? Right there we are. I don't know if you've seen this map before, but we've Patmos where the letter was written. Then the messenger went with the letter from Patmos to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon. And now we've reached Thyatira. We've gone inland a bit halfway between Pergamon and Sardis. And then we've got another map here where it actually shows the, the relief of the place. So you can see that Thyatira is actually on a flat plain. So we've got mountains this side and mountains that side. So that meant that originally Thyatira was a military town. It was a military garrison. So dependent on which side was ruling, whether it was the mountains on this side or the mountains on that side, um, Thyatira was the place right in, in the middle to try and stop the advancement of the enemy. Needless to say, it kept on changing hands. However, the Romans brought peace. And when the Romans brought peace, that meant that it didn't require to be a military place anymore, so it became a place of commerce. So, right, good position, loads of tradespeople to come in, and therefore it was a growing economy. So in Thyatira, we know that in actual fact it reached its peak about two centuries after this letter was written. So it's just an emerging economy here. It's also a totally built-over place as far as we're concerned. It's actually the modern city of Akizar in Turkey. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. But you can see all the modern houses at the back there. And therefore, it has actually been very difficult to find out a great deal really about the city because most of it is actually covered up. So, but there are some ins inscriptions on some of these pillars and things so that we can know some of what it's about. So one of the things from these inscriptions that we've discovered is that there was a particularly large number, based on other Roman Greek cities, a large number of trade guilds in this city, and that they were particularly influential. So while here we have Plymouth City Council that organizes our schools and our hospitals and so on, in this town it was actually all the trade guilds that organized all these different aspects of city life. So what actually is a trade guild? Well, for us, maybe it is a bit like a trade union. So everybody is a member of the 
the union, maybe a bit like, um, say, in the old days, I think it's changed now, but you couldn't get a job on the stage unless you got an equity card. So there was just no work to be had unless you were a member of equity. So in that respect, maybe a bit like a, a trade union. We know that there were lots of different guilds, particularly in Thyatira, as I said, more than in most places. So there were bakers, cobblers, clothiers, there were slave dealers, potters, tanners. Purple dye was a major thing in this city, and we know that one of the dealers in purple cloth was Lydia, and she moved from Thyatira to Philippi, and she happened to meet Paul in Philippi and was one of his first converts. Then there also was bronze smith. Bronze seemed to be a particularly important thing in, in the city as well. They didn't just have the normal type of bronze. They obviously did something special to it to make it slightly different for them. I said it was maybe like a trade union, but in some ways it wasn't like a trade union because it wasn't just the workers, it was like the bosses as well. I don't know if you have ever been to Bourneville and seen the estate and the factories that the Cadburys developed for all their workers. But if you look round there, there are houses, there are schools, there are health facilities, there are sports facilities. The Cadburys understood that you needed to look after your workers if you wanted to get the, the best results out of them in their 95 time in the, in the factory. So the guilds were a bit like that. They built all these different things in the cities. So to be a member of one was hugely important. So what do we know about religion in this place? Well, I think you maybe heard, if you have been here other weeks, that guilds and religion was all very much part of normal life. So it wasn't like it's work Monday to Saturday and Sunday is separate. Everything was very much together. So that it actually it would be the trade guilds who would build some of these temples. And there were some gods that they were particularly involved in in this city. Apollo Trimidius was mentioned quite a number of times. And the trade guilds would organize feasts and worship and indeed business probably happened in these temples as well. They also were highly likely to have had a large bronze statue in their city to this god Apollo Trimenius because bronze was one of their particular skills. Of course, we also know that in this age that the Roman emperors had decided that they would be, or the people had deified them after their death, and at some point, actually, they deified Roman emperors while they were still alive. And we've got here, if you can see this, this is a coin from AD 83, exactly the period in which this letter is about, and this shows the emperor Domitian's son, who died in infancy, and he is shown on the world, and he is holding the seven stars in his hand. Now, I don't know if you can remember back to what we heard at the beginning of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. We hear that Jesus says that he is the person that holds the seven stars in his hands. 
These people were going around seeing these coins every day. And what they read in this letter relates to everyday life for them. There may have been, in fact, there probably was a small group of Jews in the city as well. And that's mainly because the Jews did travel around once the Roman Empire bought peace and they did their business as well. And we also know that Lydia had got involved because she is referred to as being God-fearing. So it's highly likely that Lydia had come across the Jewish group in Thyatira. So we're just going to look at the first few words in this letter. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God. Maybe that's slightly related to that coin, the Son being made into a God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, their trades were involved in purifying metals, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Words very much that relate to the people living in that place. So now I've got a little fun exercise for you. I want you to write a letter in your tables. Not a letter, I want you to write a first sentence. To the angel of the church in Plymouth, write, these are the words of. So you know about Plymouth. You know the things that are identification markers for Plymouth. So if we were writing this first sentence then what are the words that you'd wish to add? Now, if you want to look back at the previous letters and see how the first sentence was different in each letter to give you a clue, do that. But you've got five minutes to come up with the first sentence, these are the words of. So we're going to move on to actually have a look at the letter. So let's just pray before we do that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that these are your words to your church. Father, we thank you that you speak to us and interpret them through your Holy Spirit. And we ask that he would be our teacher and interpret them to us now in the lives that we are living this day in Plymouth. That you will move us forward, whether it is words of encouragement, whether it is words of rebuke, that we would hear what you say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this works, and I'm not in the rear. Oh, I'm two now. Right, okay, so here's the words of today's passage. I'm afraid we've got the longest letter this week, so maybe it will take a little longer. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. 
Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to our teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, that one will rule with them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I don't know what it would have been like to be in that church in Thyatira, but I imagine what happened was that the messenger came with this letter and he maybe handed it to the leader or maybe he read it himself, I don't know. But I'm quite sure he started at Revelation 1 and then he went through and he read the letter to Ephesus, etc. So if you were in Thyatira, maybe you're beginning to think, oh, I wonder if we're going to be mentioned. Is there something specific to us? Because these other places the messenger stopped at, they've heard something for them. Is there going to be something for us? So they're kind of in tender hooks. Maybe they've slightly ignored the previous bits because they were for somebody else. But on the other hand, maybe they were also aware that there was encouragement, but there was also some downsides to some of the things that Jesus was saying. So they're sitting in tender hoots waiting for their name to be mentioned. And then it comes to the angel of the church at Thyatira, right? Oh, it's us. What's going to happen? What's Jesus going to say? And then, of course, he talks about these phrases that particularly relate to them with the fire and the, the bronze. And they're thinking, yeah, Jesus is really aiming this just for us and our situation. So, first of all, he looks at the church and views what is happening. So, first of all, what is going well? Well, Jesus has lots of great things to say about this church, doesn't he? He says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. But even better than that, you're doing more than you did at first. Now, they compared themselves to Ephesus. Ephesus was a big, well-known church. It was a church that Paul had spent a long time at, and it had got really built up. So it was a great church. And yes, Ephesus were doing great things, but then they'd been told that they'd lost their first love. Thyatira, it's a small church, maybe a struggling church. But Jesus says, I can see that you are doing more. And he commends them for all these things. To look back and to see that we are growing, hugely important. But then in when we're reviewing how we're going, as Jesus does here, sometimes some things aren't quite so good. So we've got a nevertheless. So what is it that the church in Thyatira are not managing to do so well? Yeah. They are told that they are too tolerant. Now, to us, actually, that is a very strange thing to say. Because in our society, 
tolerance is actually a greatly prized virtue, isn't it? You know, we would all love that the Palestinians could get along with their Israelites in Gaza. We like to see that in South Africa, the blacks are now managing to live with the whites. We want there to be harmony in our communities where people have different religious backgrounds, where they have different language backgrounds, where maybe they have different sexual gender things. Our society says, be tolerant of other people, live together in peace. So was that the reason that the people in this church were tolerant because it was a virtue? No, I don't think so, because tolerance was not a great virtue in their day and age. Because we know that when the Romans came and they bring all the great things that we know the Romans brought, sanitation and roads and all, all these things that they would have brought to this place. But when the Romans come, you do it the Romans way, don't you? And um, so you enjoy the benefits, but you pay the taxes, etc. And of course, the next thing that came was you then also to pay homage to the, the Roman emperor. So tolerance was not particularly in this place. And if you didn't sort of toe the line, well, you ended up in the Colosseum or the gladiatorial ring or the lions or whatever it may be. So it certainly wasn't that they were used to being tolerant. So maybe why were they being tolerant of Jezebel? Were they just people that just stuck their head in the sand? You know, maybe some of them knew that what she was saying wasn't quite right, but, well, it's not their place. They're just going to slightly ignore it. I suspect that for many of us, if somebody comes across doing something that we don't think is right, and they are our junior in our workplace or whatever, that we don't actually have too much problem in correcting a problem to somebody who's our junior. I suspect we find it slightly more difficult, or even a lot more difficult, to correct somebody who's our boss. And possibly also we find it difficult maybe to correct or point out a problem with somebody who's a close friend. We don't wish to disrupt the friendship either. So maybe there's a number of reasons why you might not challenge what is, what is going on. I remember a few years ago that I saw something happening and I didn't feel particularly comfortable about it. But, and I didn't stick my head in the sand. I did decide I thought something needed to be done, but the person was senior to me. And so I didn't have the courage to go and confront them one to one. So I did what probably most of us do in this case. We passed the buck. And so I went and found somebody else and told them, explained to them, um, and said, you, you can manage to deal with it. You're in the position you can deal with it. Did they? No. Probably like me, either they wanted to pass the buck to somebody else or they stuck their head in the sand. Ref when I reflected on that and reviewed that, I actually realized that I was wrong and that actually I should have taken some steps in order to try and correct what I thought was, was an error. But how do we collect, correct things that are in error? What is the way that is actually a good and the Jesus way to correct things? 
we've got a story in the Old Testament where David goes into sin with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet comes along, tells him a story and is able to help point out his sin to him there. But this is more a modern example here from a story which hopefully is helpful to you and you might relate to this. It's a story of two people, Mark and Jim. One day, my friend Mark and I met to discuss a matter he said was weighing on his mind. I have a close friend who claims to be a Christian, but is not living like it, Mark said. How so, I asked. Well, he treats his girlfriend badly. He neglects her and is sometimes mean to her. I've witnessed it on several occasions. He often does what he wants to do and almost never does what she wants to do. They are very serious and he has told me that he's going to ask her to marry him this summer. It really concerns me and I've been planning on confronting him. There are two ways I'm planning on doing it and I want your advice on which is the best way, he said. What are the two ways, I wondered. The first is to go to his house and confront him one to one. I've written a list of all the times I've seen him be unkind to his girlfriend and I'm planning on presenting it to him. The second way is to bring a friend with me who has also witnessed his bad behavior. I remember somewhere in the Bible it says you need to bring a witness with you or something like that. Anyway, which approach do you think would be better? Neither, I said. Neither, he responded. Why? Let me ask you two questions. First, have you ever been confronted like that? Or to be more direct, been judged by someone in a manner like you are talking about? Yes, Marx replied. One time, a guy who was in a Bible study with me had heard that I liked to go to clubs on the weekends, and he confronted me about it. He said he questioned my salvation. Then I asked him, did that approach actually help you? Not really, Mark blurted. It just made me feel embarrassed and then angry. I never went back to that Bible study and no one even called me to see how I was doing. So I asked, when someone used the same approach you're thinking of using, all it did was hurt you and make you turn away. Right, he said. Then he paused for a moment before saying, I think I see what you're getting at. You don't think this approach will work, right? Let me start by saying I think it's great that you care about your friend and his girlfriend and their future marriage. Your heart is in the right place. And it sounds like your friend really does need some help. To answer your question, I'm not sure that your way will work. But I do think there is a better way to help someone, a way that's more in sync with the kingdom of God. Towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains the right and wrong ways of trying to correct people. If you want, we could look at that passage together. Maybe we can find a better way to do what you want to do. So they spend a while discussing this over a a week or so. So then he says later, so what should I do? Spend one week praying for your friend. Don't pray about the situation or how to fix your friend. Just pray for your friend, for his well-being, for his relationship with God, I said. 
Okay, then what? Then we'll meet again next week, same time. But what about my list? What about my confrontation? Not yet. Put your list in a drawer for now. Spend a week praying for him. And then we'll enter the next phase. A week later, we met for lunch. And I could tell Mark was very different. He wasn't agitated. He seemed peaceful. And I asked him if he had been praying for his friend. And he said he had. Praying for him changed everything, Jim, he said. I feel a lot more compassion for him. And my need to attack him is nearly gone. Still, I feel like I want to address this issue with him. So what's the next step? Remember the Jesus way we talked about last time, I asked. Right. Ask comes first. I think I know what I need to do. We met again two weeks later, and he was excited to tell me how well it had gone with his friend. Mark shared with me a story that reinforced my appreciation of Jesus' teaching. He said that he remained in a posture of support for his friend. And he learned, sorry, he opened up and he learned that his friend had an abusive and distant father. Without any prompting, his friend talked about his fear of repeating his father's patterns. He thanked Mark for letting him open up, and he asked Mark to continue to walk with him in a journey towards change. Reviewing how we are going is very important, it's vital to our lives. It encourages us if things are going well. We can keep on going, we can keep on moving in the right direction, and we can see the markers. It can stop decline, maybe. If the church in Ephesus had looked, they might have realized that actually they didn't have the same love for Jesus they had had at the start. It can refocus us on the goal that we are aiming for. We should do it personally. And obviously we have to remember this letter was written to a church, so we should do it as a church. So, what was the problem? Jezebel. So, who on earth was Jezebel? Highly unlikely that this was her real name. A bit like us referring to somebody, it was Jack the Ripper. So, this is a name of somebody that the people have a picture of immediately that the name is mentioned. So, who historically was Jezebel? Well, we can find her in 1 Kings 16. I don't know if any of you got Bibles and you want to flick it up, but you can have a flick through or flick through, flick through later. Um, and her story goes on to 2 Kings chapter 9. She was the wife of King Ahab. Not a dreadfully good king, but an Israelite king. And he brought in a wife from a foreign country. And she brought with her all her gods. She probably was a prophetess of Asherah. And she was certainly into all the worship 
with Baal. And I don't know if you remember the stories of Elijah. And then there was all these building of these big pyres to see which God would set the one alight. And then Elijah douses his with water. And his is the one that comes to light and not the other one. Jezebel didn't like that. She then goes and starts killing all the prophets of, of God. She also was involved in the story with Naboth, her husband, fancied Naboth's vineyard. He was the next door neighbor. He wasn't willing to sell it. She says, well, you're the king. You can have whatever you want. Kills Naboth, gets the vineyard. Her death was prophesied as being horrible. And if you read through to 2 Kings chapter 9, it wasn't very pleasant. She was an abhorred person in this story and to the Jews. There is no way that any Jews would ever call their daughter Jezebel. And therefore, highly unlikely that any Christian in the church either would have taken on that name. If they had it, they would probably have tried to ditch it for, for another one pretty quick. So that's what the name, the connections that come with it. So who actually is Jezebel in Thyatira? Well, it's highly likely, first of all, she's a member of the church. So therefore, one assumes that she has come to faith. Like Lydia came to faith in, in Philippi, that this lady came to faith in the church in Thyatira. And, you know, she develops spiritual gifts like I'm sure most of them did. So she is saying that she has a gift of prophecy. Highly likely, too, that she was actually a prominent businesswoman. We know that Lydia was obviously a businesswoman, although she's now living in Philippi. So Jezebel probably also is a prominent businesswoman. So she's used to speaking, addressing people. And when she becomes a Christian and she's in the church, she continues it. And she starts using the platform that she has to address and speak to the, the church members in that, that church. You know, maybe sometimes we do that when somebody famous suddenly becomes a Christian. Straight away, we want to know what they have to say in certain things. Maybe their spiritual maturity hasn't quite caught up with their worldly wisdom. So, what actually was she saying? What's the accusation that's leveled against her? Well, it appears that she is probably teaching that it is okay to go along with all the business practices that happened in, in that town. So, you know, you've heard of going for business lunches and you do business over lunch. Well, for them, they did business over feasts in the temple and they weren't just food, but they were also sexual orgies. So that was the way in which their work and their living practice actually happened. How did she manage to get away with teaching that? It is possible that she allowed for, there was a Greek philosophy that suggested what your body does is quite separate to what your mind does. The two are very s separate. Your body will die. Your spirit goes on forever. So it doesn't matter. She may have taken the teaching that Jesus will forgive everything. That, that's possible as well. But she obviously taught that it was okay to continue to be involved with these practices that, that happened. Now, the apostles had previously said 
that Gentiles did not require to be circumcised, but they had asked them to refrain from eating the food offered to idols and to refrain from sexual immorality. It appears that in this church, maybe the sexual immorality was the even bigger thing because it's the one that's mentioned first. Last week, it was the food to idols that was actually mentioned first. So why would the people listen to her? Well, maybe they were actually quite relieved. You know, as I said, these guilds, they provided your houses, your health care, your education. They, get, they were relating to your livelihood. If you were going to have to pull back from that totally, then how were you going to live? You were going to be totally ostracized from society. So to get somebody who is a well-known person and therefore becoming like a well-known Christian speaker, and she says, it's fine to do these things. There may have been plenty of people in the church who actually thought, phew, that's one, I'll just go along with what she says. And they weren't actually working it out for themselves. So they get involved in these practices along with her. So what does Jesus have to say? First of all, I think Jesus is very concerned that she is using her platform to lead others astray. Jesus talks in Matthew about better to have a millstone tied round your neck and be thrown into the sea than to make my little ones stumble. So she was making other Christians stumble. But he gives her an opportunity to repent. So Jesus has She's aware of what the sin is, and that's what Jesus always does, isn't it? He always tells us, this is what the sin is, but come and repent. That's what he wants. He wants us to be restored into relationship with him. He gives Jezebel that opportunity and those who have listened to her teaching and gone along with her. But Jesus is also the person that sees and knows and Jezebel, unfortunately, is not willing to change her ways. She's not willing to repent. And therefore, she's to be punished. And so the illustration here is that she goes from our bed of immorality to a bed of sickness, basically a bed of death. So she's to basically die. And those who've been going along with that sexual immorality with her they're not repenting, that is meaning death. This may mean that a sizable portion of the church is actually going to be wiped out. Jesus does not want immorality, impurity in his church. He needs his bride to be pure. So how actually does that apply to us? You know, I don't think many of us, any of us, probably are involved in what we would call sexual orgies in order to do business. However, it's not that long ago that I was reading in the Herald that Plymouth University is, would you believe, number six in the league tables for sexual promiscuity. So it is very much in our culture. Maybe there is, for some people, a place where they kind of try to sleep themselves to the top, where if you're involved in the entertainment industry, that drugs just commonplace, it's what everybody does. 
Maybe you're involved in sports club where the drunkenness in a pub crawl is just the thing that everybody does. We all have different ideas on what is actually acceptable to us personally. We've got different ideas on our use of alcohol and our use of language on uh, what we will watch in the TV or go to see at the cinema. We might have different ideas on how acceptable nudity or sex portrayal is in photography or art. Are we listening to what Jesus is saying to us, even if we don't want to hear that message? Or are we primarily listening for the voice of somebody who will let us off the hook and tell us that what we'd like to do is okay. And also, we do not wish to be the person who's going to lead our brother into stumbling. We all have a per personal obligation to work out what Jesus is saying to us. We shouldn't just always be going to listen to another, or if we are giving advice, we need to be careful what our advice is. So the last section, what's the outcome? There are some who have listened and repented. There are some who did not go along with what, Thi what Jezebel taught. And for them, life is tough. And it's not coming to an end yet. But Jesus says, hold on until I come. He is coming back. There will be an end. Also, so that was Persever. Also, he says that he's not giving us any additional burdens. So the two requirements that were given don't eat food offered to idols, don't be involved in sexual immorality. But Jesus is then saying, But I'm not giving you any additional burdens. A few years ago, a good few years ago, my mum was young. Being a Christian probably did come with a fair number of other rules. So she would tell me she wasn't allowed to go to dances. She wasn't allowed to go to the cinema. She certainly wasn't allowed to drink alcohol. Um, and she had to wear obviously smart clothes and a hat on a, a Sunday. And you certainly didn't wash the car on a Sunday. There were loads of rules that went along with being a Christian. Jesus is saying he's not giving us any additional rules, burdens. He says his burden is light. However, personally, sometimes there are things that Jesus says to us which are designed for our growth. I remember Andy just saying a few weeks ago that Jesus had told him not to do the lottery. He said, Jesus told me not to do the lottery. He didn't say, I am telling you that you shouldn't be doing the lottery. It was a personal growth goal for Andy. And so there are times when you will take on specific rules for your life that help you grow and mature as a Christian. But they're not necessarily the burdens that you should be handing them to, to somebody else. And then there's the promise well, this bit at the end of the letter comes actually from a promise in Psalm 2, verse 7, that God, the Father, gave to the Son, Jesus. 
In Psalm 2 verse 7 it says, He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Going back to that son of God at the beginning. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces of pottery, which is the promise that's given in the end here. So this promise that's been given to Jesus, he's actually saying, if you hold on to the end, you can share that promise with me so that we will have that opportunity for being able to destroy evil in our world, to have that reign of justice at that time when Jesus comes back. And he says, you will also be given the morning star. Jesus refers to himself later on as being the morning star. Maybe that morning star is the one that comes up just as dawn is about to come up. And that morning star, maybe a new day is dawning. There is a new day when Jesus will come back as ruler in charge of all this world all around and that we will be given that morning star. So just to sum up for all your questions to discuss, First of all, we need to review our progress. We need to make sure that we are keeping ourselves pure, that we're not helping our brother to stumble, and that we need to persevere through the tough times because Jesus is coming back and a new day is dawning. So I've got some things for you to discuss in your groups there we are, which are particularly about some of your own experiences in doing some of these things that I have raised today. So on you go, you don't necessarily need to start, you can start anywhere you like, whatever grabs your fancy, and there you are, on you go.